Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the threat of a third lockdown before we're out of the second lockdown is an election on the horizon and an interview with potential B.C. Liberal leadership candidate Aaron Gunn. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on Thursday, March 11th, 2021. Great to have you aboard the program I am going to be talking later in the show in depth with Aaron Gunn, who is an advocate and activist for taxpayers and civil liberties and all these other great things that you may have heard of. He is entertaining a run for the leadership of the BC Liberals, and we'll talk with Aaron about why that's not actually a bad thing. No, I'm not just selling out and interviewing some liberal. The BC Liberal is a bit of a different animal, but again, we'll talk about that more later on in the show. I want to talk about the direction things are headed in the uh, pandemic on freedom, and that is something that has been a recurring theme. We've talked in the past about the moving goalposts from the so-called public health advisors, but this story in the Globe and Mail, I think, is giving us a fairly solid roadmap at what may be on the way, at what may be coming down the pipeline. It's based on Ontario, but we know that all of the province's responses tend to be interdependent for the most part when it comes to these sort of things. The headline, we now have two pandemics, variant cases soar in Ontario. The story is based on a brief from Ontario's COVID-19 science table. These are the people who have been behind the modeling that's been wrong pretty much every single time. Peter Juni, who's the director of the science table and epidemiology professor at the University of Toronto, says there's the traditional pandemic, which is under control, and the new pandemic, which is not under control. So you may have thought we were still in the midst of the first pandemic. We are, and now we have the parallel pandemic. So when one pandemic is enough, you add a second pandemic into the mix. But by this time next year, who knows? We may be on pandemic 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, but we're all serving our pandemics concurrently. None of these consecutive sentences like they have in the U.S. We are doing concurrent pandemics right now. And this means uh, we are going to be seeing more and more lockdowns. Dr. Juni warned, the article says, another lockdown will likely be needed and may have to be stricter than earlier ones. He says, even at their strictest, Ontario's lockdown measures never drove the reproductive number of variant cases below one. That's the problem, he said. It's much more likely that we'll need to have another lockdown, and it's much more likely that the lockdown needs to be more efficient than before. Now, you may ask what efficient means in the context of a lockdown. Further lockdowns may need to be beefed up with curfews and travel restrictions to make them less what he calls leaky. Now, leaky basically means, in medical terms, you being able to have some sort of reprieve from literally being on house arrest for how long did the Ontario lockdown last? This time, lockdown 2.0, about two and a half months if you were in parts of the greater Toronto area. So what's happening now is before we're even out of the second lockdown, where we're just kind of getting to that point where we might be able to see some hope on the horizon, and bam, they're saying, no, 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 there's a new pandemic now, it's not the old one, and that means we need new lockdowns, new restrictions, and all of the things that the government stopped short of doing, like curfews, well, well, they're going to have to be there. 
And I should say, this isn't coming from Doug Ford. This isn't coming from the chief medical officer in Ontario. This is coming from the head of the science table, which under normal circumstances, you'd say, okay, well, there are some people that are going to be a little bit more alarmist and others that aren't. Well, the government has been pretty deferential to this table. The government has been pretty deferential to the guidelines that are being put forward. So there are either two things happening here. On one hand, this is a, a test balloon. See how people react and make sure that the person we can blame for this is a guy on the science table and not someone like Doug Ford or, or Christine Elliott in Ontario. Or they're just trying to put this out now so that when the government does, you know, 90% of this really strict lockdown, it looks like they were being more reasonable because, oh, well, you know, at least they didn't do a curfew. At least they didn't go all the way. That was, I think, the strategy behind what happened in December when all of these media reports were talking about the Ontario government entertaining a curfew and then all of a sudden the lockdown comes on, there's no curfew. And, and I'm like, wait, are we supposed to be grateful are you supposed to get a gold star? Are we supposed to be relieved that we aren't literally being kept in our houses after a certain point by order of state? No. You don't get brownie points for respecting fundamental freedoms. That is what you're supposed to do. That is the baseline. And at this point, it's looking like we are headed towards a repeat of last year, where things are crappy in the winter months, we get a bit of a normalcy return in the summer, and then once the fall comes, we start ramping right up again until we're, boom, in a full-blown lockdown that in this case, they say, is going to be stricter than the prior ones. And it may not even take that long. I mean, the first cycle was one year. We are now at the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring this a pandemic, which means in just a, a few days, we'll be at the one-year anniversary of our two weeks to flatten the curve, and we will be entering the 13 months of the 14 days to flatten the curve. So what's happening now is those goalposts continue to move based on numbers that have never quite panned out. And, and this is not COVID trutherism. This is not saying the pandemic's not real. It's not saying there's not a health risk. It means that when numbers have been put forward to justify actions, not only have we steered clear of the worst case scenario, in many cases, we've steered clear of the best case scenario. We, we've come out better than the best case scenario. And this is something that we should be proud of. We should be happy about this. But instead, there's this sort of Damocles hanging over our heads where governments are going to keep threatening more and more lockdowns because they've moved their priorities. They've moved their goals. Just to put this in context, Ontario's long-term care virus mortality has dropped 96%. Now, this is based on a report from the actual science table, a brief that came out of the latest data from long-term care homes, and they found that 96% drop. So if the goal was, as it should have been, target the most vulnerable, a combination of vaccinations and other efforts at long-term care homes have actually been working. So it's a little bit odd to me that on one hand, we've been told the vaccine is the goal. And once we get everyone vaccinated, then we're going to be able to go back and live our lives normally. And that's fine. Well, if the vaccine schedule is what it is and we'll be able to get everyone who wants to be vaccinated vaccinated by September, notwithstanding different schedules and different lines that we get from the federal government about which doses are coming when and all that. But if the plan is that by the fall, we want to have most of the country vaccinated, why is there a need for another lockdown? 
See, what the government is using as a cudgel here is the variant. And this is what they're saying in Ontario, that, well, you know what? The traditional pandemic strain, the traditional COVID strain has been on the decline. It's plummeted, but the variants have skyrocketed. They're saying, I think, 40% of the Ontario cases are one of the so-called variants of concern, which are the viruses that originated in Brazil, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. You're allowed to say those. You're not allowed to say the Wuhan variant, but you're allowed to say these other three places. So take from that what you will. But what they're saying is that, okay, those are the new things and they're more infectious. They're more deadly. We have all these other problems that come from that. But it also seems like the vaccine is still protecting people against that. If long-term care uh, fatalities are going down significantly, and that's where the vaccine priorities were, then what's the problem? What, what are they not telling us? And this, by the way, is not a grand conspiracy here. I, I think that there's been a lot of ineptitude. I, I think early on in the process, you had to err on the side of caution, simply not knowing what you were dealing with. But what the government is trying to do, what public health advisors are trying to do, is use the variant as justification to go right back to square one and say, okay, everything we've learned, we're starting from zero. We no longer know what we're dealing with. With the exception of South Africa, where there was some concern that the AstraZeneca virus specifically wasn't protecting against the strain, and it wasn't definitive, they're saying they needed more study, there hasn't actually been any reasonable grounds to say that the vaccine plan, if that's their plan, isn't helping and isn't going against these other variants. And if these variants are becoming dominant in Ontario and Ontario's ramping up its vaccines, then what's the problem? And I know there are a lot of people who watch this that are not fans of the vaccine. Listen, I am the first person to jump up and say mandatory vaccines are wrong. For people that want it, let them have it. That's what choice is. But I'm just talking about the government's own rhetoric on this. They say that the vaccine is the goal. Remember, that's why two weeks to flatten the curve became just a couple of weeks longer and then so on and so forth until when there's a vaccine. And then when everyone can get vaccinated. So we're nearing that point. We're nearing that point where everyone who wants to be vaccinated is going to be. And the government's still talking about plunging us into another lockdown, which just doesn't align with the goals. And this is why there are a lot of people who are saying that they think some of the measures that governments have imposed are here to stay even after a vaccine. I wouldn't be surprised if masks on airplanes become the new normal. I wouldn't be surprised if masks in venues of mass congregation become the new normal. And all of a sudden, what we will see is actually a competition among jurisdictions for who can be the most free. And I think it's actually going to be interesting to watch this because if countries like Canada decide that if you want to go to a big rock concert in, I don't know, like 2027, you have to be masked up even though COVID will have been long gone by then, we hope. Well, all of a sudden, everyone's going to want to go to the big concerts in Florida or uh, what's that? There's a, a big outdoor venue near me in Michigan, the DTE Center, I think, and other spots like that as well. People are going to want to go elsewhere. And this is, I think, something that is so key. If the goalposts keep moving, eventually no one wants to play the game. And that's where a lot of Canadians are. And the government's biggest fear right now is not COVID, it's not the variant, it's not vaccine shortages. Their biggest fear is the delegitimization of themselves. 
That's the, that's their big concern right now is the pandemic fatigue that is sweeping people in Canada and across the country. But I'll, I'll say Canada in particular, which has just seemed to do a particularly bad job at uh, keeping up with even less developed, less wealthy countries when it comes to getting back to normal and, and getting back into the swing of things. And, and at a certain point, people have to start seeing through the making it up as they go along trend, which again, may have been good for the first few months. Maybe even you can stretch it out to four or five months, but but a year in, the making it up as you go along thing loses the legitimacy it had then because you've had a year. You've had a pretty long runway right now. One example of this inaction was this exchange in, not, it wasn't in question period, it was in committee, an exchange between Michelle Remble, who we actually played a clip from on the show earlier in the week, and Health Minister Politburo Patty Haidu. Take a look. My question is material, and I would like a yes or no answer. So out of respect okay. to that victim, a yes or no answer is needed. Thank you. The data, uh, the data. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the minister will answer the question in the fashion she chooses to answer the question. Uh, whether or not the me the member is satisfied with the answer is an, an entirely different matter. Um, she will have the same amount of time to answer the question as was uh, to ask the question. So, with that, minister, you have about ten seconds. Thanks. I will just say this: the data is incomplete internationally. We are, as a world, trying to figure out what the best approach is to prevent the import of COVID-19, the combination of quarantine and testing, and we are under, it is under study. Thank you. Um, so is that an admission that this was a political decision to discourage March break travel as opposed to a data-driven decision that shows that the quarantine hotel program would uh, do better at spreading the variants than at-home quarantine? No, uh, I think it's uh, inappropriate for the member to put words in my mouth. What I said is exactly what I just said, which is that we take our obligation very seriously to ensure that we are doing everything in our power to prevent the importation of COVID-19 and in particular so where's the, data? the variants of concern. So where's the okay. data? As I answered previously, the data is incomplete in terms of what combination you, of Chair. measures are. Now, that was from the Public Safety and National Security Committee, which uh, Patty Haidu was testifying before. But the questions were very simple. Do you have any data? Do you know what's happening? And Patty Haidu's response is, well, you know, it's still it's incomplete and we don't know. And and, and in fairness to I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but in fairness to Minister Haidu, you can't have full data on a program that was just launched not that long ago. So I don't expect her to have complete data. But what was interesting is how she didn't seem to have any data whatsoever. She didn't seem to have any knowledge. The government didn't test this project. The government didn't really do anything anything to suggest that it knew that this was going to be a positive force. And I talked about this on Tuesday, and what's happened here is the government has tried to make travel uh, effectively banned. They can't ban it, but they've tried to make it so convoluted and so expensive that no one travels. In doing so, they make it so that the only people that can afford to do vacations and take the three-day quarantine and then the two-week home quarantine and so on are the uber-wealthy. But the reality is there's a lot of essential international travel. Even today in the era of Zoom, there are a lot of things you can't do for Zoom, like being with a dying relative, like going to a funeral overseas, even going away because you need a break for your mental health or whatever the case may be. And we have compassionate exemptions for people coming into the country to get out of hotel quarantine, but nothing for people going out of it. 
And everyone likes to conjure up this image in their mind of what an international traveler is. And I think the government would like us to believe that it's all just, you know, 19-year-old spring breakers, and that's what international travel is right now. But there are a lot of people, if you look around at airports that look like they're going for school, for work, for they could be going for compassionate reasons, visit family, maybe they're going to a funeral, all of these circumstances, which are completely legitimate, And if anyone were to ever ask, uh, what's the purpose of your trip? I think the answer is none of your damn business. That's, I think you get to decide whether something's essential or not like that. But there are a lot of reasons that people are traveling, and these are not just people of means. So what the government is doing is penalizing people who, for whatever reason, want to or need to leave the country and come back. And there is a legal challenge going on about this. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is filing a constitutional challenge of the hotel quarantine program. And the basis of this is very simple. They say this is a violation of Canadians' right to enter Canada. It's a violation of their right to liberty. And it's a violation of their right to be free from arbitrary detention, as well as free from cruel and unusual punishment. And if you look at some of the conditions of these hotels, you can see how cruel and unusual punishment actually applies to some of these airport hotels. And I'm looking right now, I got my own passport out. I I dug my own passport out because I had seen people share this. And, And to be honest, I'm not sure if I had ever read the message that's on the opening page. I don't think there's anything here you can't see on it, but it says the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada requests in the name of Her Majesty the Queen all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without delay or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. Pass freely without delay. That's the point. And like all constitutional freedoms like this, the government is choosing to ignore it under the auspices of public health advice that isn't really rooted yet in any sort of science. I say yet because if they were to come out and say, well, actually, here's the science, great. And that's part of what the CCF is trying to do in its legal challenge. They're actually trying to get the government to pony up its data. And you may remember this is also part of the James Coates case in Edmonton, where the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is trying to get the government to say, you say that churches can't operate at the capacity limits they want. Great. Show us the numbers. It's on you. You're the one that's putting this limit in. You're the one that's limiting charter rights, constitutional rights. You, therefore, have to be the ones to provide the evidence that that is a reasonable limitation, a reasonable limit of one's freedoms. And it's going to be very difficult for governments to provide that if they, as it's looking like, genuinely do not have it. If they genuinely don't have the data on which they are resting their entire apparatus. And I will say the CCF case, what's interesting about it is they are representing five people who need to travel imminently or who have recently returned from doing so. One of them was a guy with a cross-border marriage who needs to help his wife who's disabled prepare for surgery. There are other reasons, as I've said, that aren't just spring breakers or you know wealthy elite family vacations where people are needing to go abroad. And doing so and subjecting them to this uh, three-day hotel imprisonment, which I think actually the prisons are giving you better food. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But doing this, if it's not providing a benefit in any public health sense, where's the justification for it? And remember, we already have for air, this only is for air travelers, this isn't for land travelers. So for air travelers, we already have the requirement of a PCR test before you come in. 
we already have the requirement that you quarantine for 14 days at home. We're not adding any extra layer of security. We're adding an extra filter layer. We're adding an extra layer of theatrics, but we're not actually adding an extra layer of security when we do this. It came about because government needed a scapegoat. They needed to say they were doing something. They needed to keep the fear alive. So boom, international travel, they became the scapegoats. Canadians are starting to see through it, and I think Canadians are starting to see that the numbers just don't align with the level of fear we're told to sustain. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I try not to do too much content that falls into just the general horse race because I find that stuff gets very boring. The, oh, is there going to be election? Is there not? And I mean, the, the answer is that I have no idea. And every time someone asks me if I think there's going to be an election, I have to say something in a way that makes it sound like I'm smart. But really, we all are just flying blind on this. What we do know is that the government is not particularly eager to put forward a budget. The reason for that may be that they don't want people to see how broke they are. Or perhaps the liberals are are just not particularly confident that they could get their budget passed. Maybe that's why they don't want to give an easy out to have anyone trigger the downfall of the government. I don't think that the government wants there to be an election when Canadians are wondering, hey, why can't we get vaccinated? When Canadian politicians are talking about a third lockdown. Ideally, you'd think Justin Trudeau would want to be campaigning when he can do the George Bush uh, mission accomplished banner behind him and say, yes, we defeated the pandemic. We defeated COVID. And now you've got to reelect me. That I think would be what he wants. Now, if he wants to do that, he has to actually do it. And right now we're nowhere near on track to do that. But there still is a big problem for the conservatives because a lot of people on the right say, you know what, my singular goal is I want to get rid of Justin Trudeau, so we need an election. But if you're going to do that, you better make sure you can win. That was what Sun Tzu said in The Art of War. If you're going to go to war, you better make sure you have a plan for victory. And right now, I don't think the conservatives have that. Now, they've got this weekend coming up their virtual convention. And like any virtual convention, generally speaking, I don't particularly care about it. This one I might tune into a little bit. But basically, the conservatives are trying to have their first opportunity to rally together since Aaron O'Toole was crowned the leader back in August. And Aaron O'Toole says that it's going to be a turning point for the party. There was a piece in the National Post, though, that seems to suggest there is a bit of discontent coming from the ranks of the Conservative caucus, basically wanting to know, hey, where the heck are we? Feeling a bit stagnant. And you always have to be careful about these stories, which rely on unnamed sources, and you never quite know how strong the connections are between the reporter and the so-called uh, caucus members. We, I mean, don't, don't want to accuse them of, of making it up, of course, but The problem with these sorts of things is that they feed into the media narrative, which is that the conservatives are just nowhere to be found on this. And I would say that's true. I mean, the the goal of the opposition is to oppose. That's their job. And whenever they say that Trudeau is uh, screwing this up and screwing that up, but not wanting an election, you always have to wonder, well, hang on, if you say this is so terrible, why are you not pushing for an election? Why are you not pushing for a changing of the guard? And the reason is because in Canadian politics, generally speaking, there's a a belief that I think has some merit that if you push the election, you get punished for it. 
If you're if the election is your responsibility, you're the one that the voters will retaliate against in a little bit of a way. I mean, it doesn't mean you automatically lose, but maybe it costs you a couple of points, especially the theory goes in the midst of a pandemic when everyone's saying that, well, you know what, we no one wants to go to the polls in a pandemic. Well, the problem with that is that, well, there are a few problems. Number one, we've seen provinces in Canada go to the polls without issue, except for Newfoundland, which just screwed things up so bad. Uh, the U.S. went to the polls. Other countries have gone to the polls. Uh, you know, if this were just going on for one year, you may be able to suspend democracy. But if we are going to be heading into a three-year, multi-pandemic, multi-lockdown ordeal, you can't just indefinitely hold off elections because, but there's a pandemic! Well, great. Apparently, there's always going to be a pandemic or two or three or four or five like we were talking about at the beginning. So don't let that be an excuse for not going to the polls. I'd say when there's a time of crisis and you need good government, that's when it is especially important to have an election. Now, I'm not pushing for it. What I'm doing is I'm dispelling the excuses that people tend to use. But I think the reason the Conservatives are not pushing for an election is because I don't know if the Conservatives think they have a message that is ready to be sold yet. I don't think they have a platform. I don't think anyone knows Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole has repeatedly introduced himself to the voters, but in doing so, I, I, maybe people aren't paying attention. Maybe he hasn't captured what it is that they need to see about him yet. And the, the NDP are just completely broke. They don't want an election for their own selfish reasons because they don't think they're going to do particularly better. The Bloc Québécois is kind of interesting. I mean, they're in a pretty good spot right now. They may not want to take the risk of their seat count going down. But it's important to note that whether or not there's going to be an election has nothing to do with whether or not there should be an election. It has nothing to do with anything like that. It has to do with whether one single party decides that it wants to get behind the Liberals. If one single party between the NDP, the Liberal, or the NDP, the Conservatives, and the Bloc Québécois backs Trudeau, he's in power and could go the distance. Could be there four years. Who knows? That's what it comes down to. So ask the questions of your MPs, sure. But it is important to see through the opposition from those three parties when they're not prepared to go as far as to say, all right, I'm voting against confidence in this government. When we come back, we'll talk to Aaron Gunn here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. I know being in Ontario, I, I sometimes drift towards Ontario politics when I feel it has a national focus. So I do hope you forgive me for that. But we're making up for it today. As many of you know, I was in British Columbia last week doing filming and production on Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's war on gun owners. And, and while I was in BC, I, I had a down afternoon, not sad, but I mean, I didn't have anything scheduled. So I decided to catch up with an old friend of mine, Aaron Gunn, who has done tremendous work around BC and I would say around the country advocating first for taxpayer interests. And, and he's since broadened that to a lot of other solid small C conservative ideas. And he is looking to take the leap from independent media to politics, musing a run for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. Now, as far as BC politics goes, the BC Liberals tend to be the more electable conservative-ish party 
but the ish is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, as we'll talk about with Aaron. There's a lot of overlap between the BC Liberals and the Federal Conservatives, but there's also some overlap between the BC Liberals and the Federal Liberals. So the question comes down to, can this be a Conservative Party, and is that enough to get a Conservative government in British Columbia? Lots to chew on. Here's my interview with potential BC Liberal leadership candidate, Aaron Gunn. Aaron Gunn, he's been a friend of True North. Good to talk to you. It's great to be here. So let's start right out of the gate. Are you running for the leadership of the BC Liberals? I am seriously considering it. I'm doing my due diligence. Uh, the rules just came out uh, pretty recently, and that's something that we're considering. I was uh, been inundated with with messages and both on Facebook and emails and texts from from friends and supporters encouraging me to to do something with the sad state of affairs of BC politics, and it's something I'm taking really seriously. Why would you want to? I mean, this is, I think, a big question that you've yourself been on the forefront of criticizing the state of BC politics, of politics in general, and of the BC Liberal Party. You've got a great thing going for you right now, talking about the issues. Why decide to jump into this? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Already, I've seen in just the last couple of weeks since my name started being rumored, there's the uh, you know the attacks over social media, the the uh, character assassinations. Press Progress did a big piece on me, so that is a great question, and uh, I ask myself that sometimes. But on the other hand, in the last provincial election, I was sitting back and watching it. I'm a resident of British Columbia. I was born here. I was raised here, and it was just frankly pathetic. There were there was two choices: the NDP and the NDP light, and uh, the NDP light, of course, being the BC Liberal Party. There was no vision articulated for the province. Voters were not given a choice, a real choice. And it's something that that I think needs to change. I know that for people that aren't in BC, they might be a little bit confused. Say, Andrew, you're supposed to be on the right. Why are you talking to a guy who wants to run for the leadership of the BC Liberals? You actually acknowledged that. You had posted something on Facebook when there was a movement afoot to try to draft you into politics in which you said that you think the name of the party is actually holding it back from what you'd want to see it as. Yeah, the name of the party needs to go. It's a really weird history, but uh, there's basically a two-party system here in British Columbia other than other than the Green Party. You have the NDP, and then you basically have the anti-NDP party. That's a center-right coalition. Now, why they called it the BC Liberals is a long story, but uh, what is true is that there's no reason for the BC Liberal name to exist now. Uh, for example, if we wanted to enter a doubles tennis tournament, uh, and we're like, well, let's come up with a name for our team. We wouldn't say, okay, well, let's call it Team Andrew. Like, that wouldn't be a very, wouldn't make a lot of sense. Or Team Aaron. So I think that it uh, needs a new name, one that can be inclusive of everybody that's in the coalition. The majority of members and voters of the party are federal conservatives. So uh, that's kind of the, one of the tasks I look forward to potentially taking on. That's actually an important point you raised, though, because I, I've never been completely confident that that is the case. But you think that the federal conservative DNA is really the majority of the B.C. liberal DNA? Well, I would say the majority of voters for the BC, of the B.C. liberal party are federal conservatives. They've done kind of those uh, studies. And I would say the membership as well. Now, one of the problems is the party apparatus and mm. the insiders behind the party. Um, I don't know if it matters if they're technically federal conservatives or federal liberals. I don't even know if they know any more themselves. But one thing is that they're consumed with 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 power um, and and kind of you know having their team win as opposed to actually coming up with and implementing public policy that that works for British Columbians and works for taxpayers. 
That's, I think, very key here because we saw in Alberta this happen where you had a party in the PC party of Alberta that went unchallenged for years and years. And by the end of its run, there was very little that was recognizably conservative about it because it became a, a party about power. And the BC Liberals have had that mantle for quite a while, up until just a, a couple of years ago. So there is, I think, an opportunity that that presents for a reset. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, just like you mentioned with Alberta, this seems to happen, you know, every couple of decades where parties get get tired, the establishment gets, uh, I don't want to, corrupt might be a little bit too strong of a word, but uh, there's a certain malaise that, that, that hangs over it when it comes to public policy and new ideas. And that needs to change. It needs to be reinvigorated. It needs to be rebranded and it needs to be re-energized. So that's something that, that myself or at the very least an outsider uh, should be coming into the party uh, to provide. When we hear about that term outsider, I think it's become a bit romanticized in a way, this notion of just someone swooping in who doesn't have experience in elected office. And I, and I don't want to downplay what you have done because you've certainly covered politics and you've, you've worked in the political system more broadly, but you're not an MLA, you're not a member of parliament. You are coming at this without having that conventional track towards seeking the leadership and, and ultimately the pre premiership. Why should people overlook that? Why should people overlook what they would view as a lack of experience and say, yeah, this guy could run the province? Well, I think it's about experience is important, but even more importantly, it's having the right kind of experience. So you look at a lot of the people in the BC Liberal Party right now or people that are rumored to also be running. Uh, a lot of these people were involved in bringing in the first carbon tax in North America. I don't think that's the kind of experience that we need. A lot of them were involved with the the money laundering and the housing bubble that had affordability go completely out the window for British Columbians. There's the ICBC insurance monopoly that was run to the ground. So it's important to have experience. Obviously, I've been you know, talking about and communicating issues that are important for British Columbians and Canadians for, you know, since I left university going to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But I think even more importantly is having the right kind of experience and having, you know, not having that baggage. Because uh, I guess that's, you know, the other side of that coin. Yeah, it is. And, and I think you're bang on there. And I would also say just for people outside BC, there tends to be this caricature of British Columbia where I think we define it those of us who aren't from BC as, as what downtown Vancouverites think. And, and I, you've heard this all before, the left coast and, you know, the image of the BC hippie. But, but in BC, there is, first off, a lot more of a diverse province than I, I think a lot of people outside realize. But a lot of people that are similarly frustrated at all those things you just mentioned, the carbon tax, the housing situations, even if they don't identify as conservative politically, would probably align with someone that's bringing a, a small C conservative vision to the province's politics. Yeah, it's not about conservative or liberal. I get asked this question a lot. It's about common sense. It's about public policy that works for people. It's about, uh, you know, uh, realism in public policy. So, and, and you're exactly right about the Vancouver disconnect from downtown Vancouver, uh, either with the suburbs around Vancouver, whether that's Surrey, whether that's Langley, the interior, Kelowna, Kamloops, the North and Prince George, where most, most of the mineral and oil and natural gas wealth comes from, or on Vancouver Island, where uh, people feel completely ignored. So I do think that uh, what you say is exactly correct. And there's that disconnect uh, in downtown Vancouver with, with the rest of the province, which I'm sure is similar to 
uh, Toronto and much of that province and Montreal and much of uh, Quebec, etc. Yes, and I, I don't know if every province has that. Certainly in Ontario, it, you see that dynamic where people feel that the decisions are made by a few square kilometers in the Toronto area and that's where the population is. And I'm assuming BC is, is very much like that as well. So how do you break through that with a, a vision that, and I, I'm looking beyond the leadership right now, assume you were the leader of the Liberals, uh, you're, you're running province-wide, how do you break beyond that regional imbalance and, and put a vision forward that is not gonna scare people away, but at the same time is gonna be solid to these principles that you've espoused for years? Well, I think, a couple of things. I think one thing is in the cities, and we talk about Vancouver, people that are living outside the downtown core are equally frustrated with the decisions um, coming from those downtowns, people that are living in the rural areas. So in Vancouver, for example, you have these tent cities that have been completely out of control. You have city councils in Victoria that have tore down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, for example, that have um, instituted uh, insane policies towards uh, harm reduction, quote unquote, harm reduction that have failed spectacularly. They're pretty much have taxpayer funded uh, heroin injection sites. So uh, these kind of policies, I think, have failed and people inside the cities and outside are equally frustrated. So that's, I think, how you connect with them and you try to provide a pan British Columbian vision that everybody can get behind. What is your vision for the party? Well, first of all, is to change the name. I think that has to happen because you need a new name, um, you need a new leader, but you need a new name to really turn uh, turn the page on this, you know, the, the history of the party and to tell conservatives who, some of whom stayed home last election and broke off and voted for the BC Conservative Party, that they are welcome back into the tent. So that's, that's number one. Number two, you have to get cost of living under control. And you have to realize that's, you know, a number one priority for many British Columbians and their families that don't necessarily have all the time to chat about all the nuances of, of politics, but you know they're trying to feed their families and afford their mortgage payments, and that that means the housing uh, bubble and the housing crisis. That means repealing the carbon tax. That means reining in the ICBC auto insurance monopoly, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think you got to stand up to city councils that have gone completely out of control. You, I think you need to get the pipelines built to power this economy, whether it's TMX or Coastal GasLink or putting putting Northern Gateway back on the table. I think you need to support forestry, resources, uh, you have to protect our constitutional rights and you have to rein in um, as well some of these universities like the University of British Columbia that does not respect free speech and freedom of assembly in this province. And I think as a taxpayer funded institution, that's completely unacceptable. The resource issue is huge because whenever we have these discussions in Canada, even when the Liberals are on board, the federal Liberals in Canada are on board, BC is the sticking point. And, and I refuse to believe that the average British Columbian is against the jobs, the uh, reduction in dependence on foreign oil that are all inherently uh, byproducts of the attacks on Canada's oil sector. Why has there not been a voice in BC politics that has been able to be pro-energy really in a, a, a bold way? Well, you're 100% right in that if you look at every poll, uh, the majority of British Columbians support the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. A huge majority of British Columbians support the Coastal Gas Link Natural Gas Pipeline. By the way, all 20 elected First Nation bands along the pipeline route also support that mm -hmm. project. Um, I think what you're missing 
is you're missing a politician with backbone who isn't afraid to champion Canadian oil and natural gas and say, you know what, this actually makes the world a better place. As long as we need oil in the world, as much of that oil as possible should be coming from Canada. When it comes to natural gas, that's good for the environment in, in every way imaginable because you're sending it off to China to help displace uh, coal. So I, I think you need a champion who isn't afraid uh, to stand up for his principles, isn't going to back down because they're scared of you know a bad headline with the CBC um, and really sticks to his guns. So that's what I think has been missing uh, is, is, a, is a champion for those issues and, as you mentioned, energy. What are the factors weighing on your mind as you decide whether to go through with this? Well, right now, as I mentioned, we're doing our due diligence, looking at the rules, looking at Election BC rules, um, and for me, a lot of it's timing. As you mentioned, I've got uh, just started a new show, Politics Explained, uh, have my online branding and have been expanding really rapidly. Um, and this isn't my first choice uh, of, of time to get involved into politics. I've chatted openly with individuals like yourself, other people in the movement. As you know, I'm a, a movement guy um, about how one day, you know, down the road, I might get involved into politics. But why I might be getting involved now is just the genuine frustration with lack of choices. There's just, there's no choices articulating these values, articulating an actual vision for this province. And if somebody stepped up to the plate that I thought, you know, checked all those boxes, I'd be more than happy to support them from the sidelines and continue doing my thing. So it's a long runway. The vote's not till February 2022. And uh, so one of the reasons why is I'm waiting to see if somebody actually gets in and starts articulating uh, you know, those things in which I believe and which I think, you know, a large number of British Columbians believe as well. When you look at the landscape of BC politics, is the issue that the people that you've just described don't exist or is it that they exist but are just not wanting to seek a leadership role at this point or, or don't think it's viable for them to do so? Well, I think there's a lot of apathy in British Columbia. Mm. I think the the British Columbia Liberal Party has just, as I mentioned earlier, there's kind of a malaise has been has been set beset on top of them. There's been no kind of new ideas. And then I think also, you know, who, who would want to get involved in politics? Now, if you... They, yeah, I mean, it goes back to the I, first question of yeah, why like, on earth do you want this? <laughs> if you had a successful career in the private sector, yeah. why would you possibly want to get involved in politics and take the, the, the torrent of abuse that you're inevitably going to receive? So I think that's, uh, you know, I think that deters a lot of people. For whatever reason, my brain has been been wired in such a way where you know that's something that I that I can deal with or, or my my skin is thick enough um, but for me honestly it's not really it's not really that that I want to do it or it seems like a great opportunity it's that I'm tired of sitting on the sidelines uh, I remember sitting there during the last provincial election watching the debate and just being like is this the best we can do I really think you know British Columbia third biggest province in confederation uh, plays a very important role in these you know, constitutional debates regarding infrastructure like pipelines. And I really think it needs better leadership. And this is not a publicity stunt. If you do this, you're a serious candidate. 100%. I'm only going into this to win. Uh, if, I, if I go into it and make the final call, uh, we've already got you know, a team together that's, that's discussing the possibilities. And uh, you know, like I said, we have to do our due diligence. But uh, there's no publicity stunt. Trust me, we did the... Uh, we did the you know, cost-benefit analysis, and this would be uh, much too of uh, there's much too in too much incoming that I would receive specifically, as you've seen with the the press progress report. 
why I'd be doing this for, for mere uh, publicity. I try not to put too much faith in anything Press Progress writes, but in that story they talk about a few few of the so-called expert brigade that uh, you know tends to think that the rules might be stacked against you and you might not even be allowed to run. Is that a, a serious risk or is that just press progress being press progress? Well, look, I, there's lots of rumors flying around. There are people within the party that don't want me to run because you know they found their candidate they want and they don't want to have an actual exchange of ideas. They don't want to have an actual debate about policy. They don't want the carbon tax to come up again. They think that's, you know, you know, a settled issue. To, to have someone like you on a debate stage in a party leadership, forcing candidates to defend the indefensible if they are pro-carbon tax or don't want to have the discussion is dangerous for them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, I, and I, I really, not only do I think that that's not true, I actually think that's harmful to the party. I Absolutely. think a party needs to have a robust discussion. It needs to have a robust debate. And look, I'm not looking to go personal after everybody, but when it comes to policy, we should be able to have frank conversations. Mm -hmm. And I was just meeting with someone the other day who said, no, we need this to be like, uh, they referenced an old NDP leadership race where it's like a family affair and everyone's just kind of patting each other on the back. And that's not what I think you need to do after you suffer a humiliating election defeat. I think you really need to take a look in the mirror and hash it out about a path forward uh, for this party. And that's what I think is needed. And some people don't like that fact because they're probably cozy with their little mm -hmm. enclaves of power that they've carved out for themselves in the existing party. And that's fine. I understand that I represent change and change is a threat to, to some people. And the problem if you are approaching this from a grassroots perspective, which you are, is that the people that set out the rules for these things are not representative always of the grassroots. They're a committee of party faithful. And, and this is not a, a, a swipe, swipe at this particular committee. It's just yeah. in general, this is how these things work. So I would be very leery of anyone who ever said that it's not the party members who get to decide whether you deserve to be standing in this race. I agree 100%. And look, I, I don't know the members on that committee. Uh, I try to follow... I, practice in life where I assume the best until, you know, provided with evidence that... that well, you're not going to fly in politics yeah. if that's your attitude, but uh, until, carry on. <laughs> until provided with evidence uh, yeah. of the contrary. And right now it's just rumors and speculation. I know that they're trying to, I think the other campaigns are trying to push that narrative forward because it makes me seem like some kind of extreme candidate or something like that, which I don't think is, uh, is obviously not true at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, and look, here's the other thing. This is why I really don't think it's going to happen. If you say that I can't be part of this party, if you say someone like me cannot be part of this leadership race, you're saying hundreds of thousands of British Columbians who support me or support the policies that I espouse have no place in this party. And if you're doing that, you're signing your own death warrant, as far as I'm concerned. So I don't think that they would be that dumb to do that. But... I mean, you never know. But as, as far as I'm concerned, I, I haven't heard anything, you know, directly from them or anything like that. So uh, I'm looking at the glass uh, half full for now. But again, there's uh, this party, they say it's a coalition party and they want to have uh, they want to have rejuvenation. Well, let's, you know, put your money where where their mouth is, hopefully. I guess that would be the last thing I'd want to ask you about then, Aaron, because it is a coalition party. And in these in these sorts of arrangements, there's a risk that one just consumes the other rather than the two coexisting. 
in your view, is the BC Liberals' future going to be about the battle between the right flank and the left flank? Or do you think there is a, a unified vision that you or, or in general, someone could put forward that keeps both sides happy? So right now, that unified vision doesn't exist. So right now, the party's foundation is built on a concept of just a coalition between federal liberals and federal conservatives to keep out the NDP. I think that is that is a tired. And there's not a there's not a philosophical basis. There's for that. no philosophical core, and I think that's you know that's an alliance that was made in the late or in the 1990s that no longer has any relevance. Look, let's be honest. Uh, Justin Trudeau's federal liberal government is to the left of the provincial NDP on a number of issues. So that makes like deficit financing, for example. So that makes this alliance really quite awkward. What I think you need to do is on the center right of the political spectrum, uh, create a new party or reform this existing party with its own independent vision that yes, is a home for federal conservatives, that yes, is a home for many federal liberals, but it can also get you know people that might have not traditionally voted before, maybe people that had voted NDP before or voted Green before, similar to the old social credit party which dominated BC politics for decades. Aaron Gunn, independent journalist, potential contender for the BC Liberal leadership. Thanks very much for sitting down. Thank you for having me, Andrew. My thanks to Aaron Gunn for coming on the show today and to all of you who tuned into the program. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.